The tall ships are back in Cleveland for the first time since 2019. The Asian Lantern Festival has begun. The calendar is full of festivals and exciting events to explore this weekend. Summer is in full swing in Northeast Ohio. It's Friday on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Layla Atassi, filling in for Chris Quinn, who will be returning Monday from his week off. I'm with Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin. It's been a busy, newsy, exhausting week, but let's get to it. Can you believe it's actually been a short work week? Because it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's hard to believe, but we have a list of stories. Let's start. Let's start. Let's start plowing right through up. <laughs> How did Ohio's Department of Job and Family Services respond to Caitlin Durbin's story Thursday about the disturbing reports of violence, abuse, and sexual assault among kids forced to shelter at the county's office building? Lisa, this was a pretty quick response given the fact that her story was only posted for hours before we heard we heard news from them. Yeah, they wasted zero time on this. The Ohio Department of Job and Family Services announced yesterday that they're sending a rapid response team to investigate the conditions at the Jane Edna Hunter Social Services Center. This, of course, is in the wake of allegations by two Cuyahoga County Division of Family and Children's Services workers of unsafe conditions. Um, The OGDJFS director, Matt Damschroeder, says he was, quote, disturbed and concerned to read these allegations on Cleveland So that's how he found out about it. Uh, He says they will evaluate and provide needed support to resolve issues and find some long-term solutions. So they're actually sending a physical team here to Cleveland to look into it. They also want to see if other incidents of a similar nature were reported to the state. And he says they're aware of child placement issues for kids that are going into state custody. It's an ongoing problem, not just here in Cuyahoga County. And he also mentioned that Governor Mike DeWine in April signed an executive executive order that provides $4.5 million to increase staffing and reopen beds in youth treatment facilities. Well, we are certainly going to be following this today to see what happens once this uh, rapid response team is on the ground in Cuyahoga County and what they discover and what their, what their, you know, what the next move is uh, after this. But is anybody else kind of astounded that Armin Budish is going to remain silent now for two straight days of these stories? I mean, say something, right? Mm-hmm. Also, if the state is going to be that quick to respond, why didn't you ask them to respond earlier? If they have this rapid response team, why didn't you say, hey, we're in a crisis. Can you please come Excellent help? Point. Like, Excellent point. Months, years ago. I mean, at this point, the state is basically sending in their A-team to get a handle on what's going on there. I just, it's its unbelievable that uh, that that we are still, you know, hearing no comment at all from, from Armin Budish and, and his administration. You know, Caitlin Durbin told me about, about this and, and actually tweeted about it uh, Wednesday night. She had gone to the social services building to take a photo of the exterior to use with her story. And while she was there... A, this is just so serendipitous, I can't believe it. A girl who looked to be about 13 years old ran out of the building, can you believe it, and sat on the hood of a car that was stopped at a traffic light for about 10 minutes. And Caitlin said it wow. appeared that the girl knew the driver to be, as she stood there and watched, she kind of watched the whole scene play out, that the driver appeared to be an employee at the facility that the girl recognized or something. But Caitlin just sort of watched this chaos as it held up traffic and then, you know, social workers were trying to coax the girl away from the car. 
But this was just, I mean, wow. exactly the kind of thing that the, the, the workers had been describing in, in, at county council. And astonishing. I can't, I can't believe, I can't believe what, ha, what they've been enduring there. Well, I got the feeling that the county council was taken by completely by surprise by these allegations. And I think that that's what Dam Schroeder was saying when he wants to see if there were other complaints lodged, you know, that made it all the way to the state. So that'll be part of the investigation. And he did stress that we understand that these are allegations, but he says they do want answers from the county. Yeah. Well, we will continue to follow very, very closely. More reporting to come. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The revival of former Cleveland police officer Timothy Lowman's law enforcement career was short-lived in the small Pennsylvania town of Tioga. How did this play out, Laura? Uh, He resigned. (laughs) This was Thursday morning, hours after media outlets reported that that borough of 700 people had hired him. So residents of this tiny town, I don't know how many of the 700, they actually went to the town offices and protested the move them, um, themselves. They were like, we don't want this guy as our police officer. And so Steve Hazlitt, the president of the borough council, said he withdrew the application. And he declined to say how the committee, the town police committee, had found Loman to hire him other than we advertise on Indeed.com. So apparently... That is where Loman might have been looking for. You know, a job. I was looking around online last night about more about this story, and the mayor of Tioga is is also calling for three council members to resign at their next council mm. meeting Tuesday over whatever role they might have played in Loman's hiring. And and if and if your next question is, how many council members does a town of seven hundred people actually need? I will tell you that this one has eight. <laughs> so oh wow, I know. <laughs> What in the world? That's like one to a hundred. I know. <laughs> but crazy. in the Facebook... Every, every family has That's their right. own. You can just decide who you want to represent your family. But in the Facebook thread where the mayor made that demand for, for their resignations, he says that those three council members, who he just says, Steve, Bob, Doreen, like he just <laughs> names them by first name. <laughs> you don't, you don't, don't know. Not they in that town. The same last that name, they admitted, to apparently, to him anyway, to knowing about the whole thing from the beginning. <sighs> and he urges the residents to show up to the next meeting to let their voices be heard about this. And some people in the, in the comments were like, we're going to need a bigger meeting room for this, Mayor. So it is going to get hot in Tioga in the next meeting. So, you're listening to Today in Ohio. What did the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Civil Division Chief David Lambert say in his written opinion about whether county council slush fund spending proposals violate the county charter? Lisa, I I don't know if I'm surprised or not. I'm going to say not. What what do you think? What, What happened? I think that Chris Quinn is probably like blowing smoke right (laughs) out of his ears like, what? (laughs) And, you know, but yeah, the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office found that the $66 million in ARPA funds that were given to 11 county council members to do with what they like does not violate the county charter. And that was a formal opinion that was released yesterday. It says now the charter does forbid individual members to direct spending of public money but he said that that was not the case here because the council held public hearings for all proposed ARPA expenditures and required a majority vote of council on all of them. That's 
maybe threading the needle a little bit. But this all came about because a Republican candidate for County Council Executive Lee Weingart had asked Mike O'Malley and the the civil division of the prosecutor's office to sue the council to stop the alleged what he calls misappropriation of funds. $13.8 million in projects have already been approved for ARPA money, including that $4 million for the Parma Golf Clubhouse. Weingart says he's disappointed at the ruling, but he still thinks it violates the county charter but he says he will not file his own lawsuit. So he's apparently going to let it drop. You know, a couple things. You know, first, it's it's really interesting to me that, that there's this disagreement between Eugene Kramer and Bruce Akers, two of the architects of the charter, over whether the charter that they wrote was intended to prevent counsel from directing the expenditure of money in this way. They, they don't agree on what the language of that charter provision is actually saying when it prohibits the distribution of funds, quote, at the order or direction of any individual member of the council. They, they think that that means two different things. It's just weird that that years later they have such wildly different interpretations of that, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't they have hammered that out yeah. on the front end? I don't know. <laughs> And like I said, it seems they're they're threading a pretty n- narrow, you know, needle there legally. Yeah. But you know what? Look past the charter for a second. I think really the real problem with these expenditures is the sunshine law violation. And and we've been saying that from the beginning. Council members, they just showed up on, you know, one day with a fully formed plan to divvy this money into 11 pots with $6 million each to be spent on projects of their choosing. And that discussion and that decision was made somewhere. And I'll tell you what, it wasn't in a public meeting because Caitlin Durbin is right on top of that stuff. So where did that happen? Yeah, and I find it interesting that the opinion said that, you know, there were, you know, public hearings. And I I don't remember reading of any. Are they talking about they're now? Talking, now we're going to have yeah, public Yeah, they're hearings. talking about the public hearings that will happen now around the proposals that they bring forth out of those pots of money. That's different. But when did they decide to divide that money up into these pots and, and to spend it in this fashion? That was, that was not in the sunshine. And so council can pretend they've been vindicated by this letter from Dave Lambert that says they didn't run afoul of the county charter. But the sunshine laws are another matter, and we're not backing off from that argument. So you're listening to Today in Ohio. Why was the warden of the Cuyahoga County Jail reprimanded this week for her conduct at work, Laura? Well, because she basically told an inmate that... Well, okay, I'll tell you yes. the whole story. So this is this is <laughs> Michelle Henry, and this incident occurred on April 20th with an inmate named Hontez Stanford. He was being escorted from the showers when he blew a kiss to Ooh. Henry. And she's actually known him for quite a while. This guy has been in and out of prisons, including at her last job at a prison in Grafton. And she said, well, you're going to get a kiss with my Ooh. fist, according to Ooh. records. And then apparently this guy baited Henry and asked when she was going to do that. And he, she said, right now, proceeded towards Stanford. He told him, she told her to hit me on camera right now. So a jail officer did stop her. She, and then she had told investigators she simply wanted to speak with Stanford, though she admitted it was hardly the best time to do so. She said she wouldn't have assaulted him. And the county gave her a written reprimand, though they have defended her work, said she's a major asset to the facility and have made big improvements. But I, I get it. You cannot talk like this to an inmate, but 
I mean, I kind of feel for the woman putting up with this crap all yeah. the time. Yeah, I mean, she threatened to hit hit a guy. That's not. Yeah, she should not. Not yes, cool. 100% I mean, I wrong. think when you're the warden, right. you've got to have ice water in your veins in that job. Yes. But but ultimately, she didn't hit the guy, and that's. I mean, that takes a lot of self restraint and and keeping keeping in mind that this was in fact just a verbal altercation in the end. I feel like I do have sympathy for the difficulty of the job she has to do. And I'm sure it's extremely hard not to lash out at a guy who's taunting you like that, who actually has a record of harming officers. I mean, I was kind of taken aback when I got to that part of the story that explains, you know, all the things that this guy has done to harm officers and, and you know, in that facility. And and the fact that she's a woman and he's telling her to kiss, you know, kiss, it's like the sexual nature right. of it. I mean, the, the county basically right. said they just described the incident as an outburst considered normal in such a difficult work environment. She's had 25 years in corrections and obviously she's the warden. So she, she has the bona fides to get this job. She should not be responding that way to inmates but like what are you you're human what are you gonna do i assume they all lose their cool sometimes because that is incredibly hard well and two she kind of has to kind of set a tone there because if she allows this kind of abuse to happen to her it'll be open season so you do kind of also has to set a tone with the jail officers who have had plenty of problems on their own about how you can't just settle it the way you want to settle it you got to follow the rules right right you're listening to today in ohio Healthcare advocates in Ohio are calling it a life or death issue. Whether Congress will extend temporary federal health insurance premium subsidies that expire at the end of the current plan year. What's at stake if that doesn't happen, Lisa? Well, it could affect 200,000 Ohioans who are able to afford health insurance with these uh, tax credits. So several healthcare advocates, including the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition and UH Can Ohio, as well as Congresswoman Chantel Brown, are asking to continue the pandemic-era subsidies that reduced premiums in the Affordable Care Act insurance plans. If they expire, those people with incomes that are over four times the federal poverty level will have to pay full price. Um, the estimated cost to expand this program nationwide, obviously, would be $22 billion a year. Uh, according to a Kaiser Family Foundation report, a 40-year-old making $51,520 a year would see their health care premiums jump from 8.5% to 10% of their income. Uh, Chantel Brown is saying that the ARPA tax credit saves about 250 a month for an Akron family of four with $75,000 of income. It would be about $100 a month in savings for sh- a Shaker Heights single adult making $30,000 a year. But again, I said 200,000 Ohioans have taken advantage of these tax credits. So to lose them would be not good. $22 billion each year. I mean, that's not cheap. But the alternative no. is, is fo- you know, folks being forced to choose between feeding their families or paying for health insurance. We cannot allow that, right? And and, and $22 billion in the scope of, of the federal government's budget is really, I mean, you've put it into context of everything else that they that the federal government pays for. I was trying to look around on, online last night to find out, you know, what what else $22 billion pays for. And I fell, fell upon some story about how federal government, like, paid Microsoft $22 billion for some crazy, 
you know, goggles for the for the army that that nobody likes. Like they were developing these like high tech goggles that they're just going to now scrap or something because they're just, and we're just like we we throw away money, you know, twenty two billion dollars could keep this program afloat to help people at least for one year to, to help stretch health health insurance and and help families make ends meet. I mean, of course, this probably yeah. could have been avoided had we had we gone with a single payer system from the start. <laughs> right. Just, I mean, these are all just band-aids, you right. know, just to kind of help people along. And it's a shame because, you know, the United States is kind of in the middle to the back of the pack as far as health insurance coverage. And here's an easy way to do that. And as you said, military expenditures, they spend that much on one jet for crying out loud, one that didn't do very well, as I recall. Right. So, yeah, and, you know, the, we, we have to concentrate on the health of our people. Absolutely. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What historic and to many sacred site in Kirtland is undergoing restoration? Laura, I'm going to admit I didn't know much about this until we assigned reporter Bob Higgs to write about it. What What is this all about? This is Joseph Smith's house, and obviously he's the founder of the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon religion. Um, and Kirtland is very important to the religion, which they they stayed there from 1831 to 1838, and converts flocked to this region. They were had about 100, or they had a small group that got there in, 19, in 1831 and had 2,000 by the time they left in 1838 and moved west to Illinois. So he had, they were like a loosely organized group of followers when they started, and this is where the church really became a fully recognized ecclesiastical organization. And this house is a two-story wood frame building located on Ohio 306 near the Kirtland Temple. There's an entire kind of park of of historical structures there that have been restored and what they're going to do is actually like take pieces of the house off that have been added over the years and put it back to the shape that it was in when joseph smith lived there i believe with his wife emma ah you know i didn't realize that joseph smith lived in kirtland during those formative years of the church and and that in fact it remains this place of pilgrimage to so many Mm -hmm. mormon people because of that and it noticed that Bob, you know, Bob's story includes this, uh, the numbers of how many visitors come to the region to to see these to see this the site. And he said that the site expects 40,000 to 50,000 visitors in 2022. That's amazing that it would have that kind of yeah, draw. Because an important. An important part of the religion is the pilgrimage to these holy sites, right? To here, to Illinois, obviously, Salt Lake City, if they don't. If you're not living there. So I think that it's part of the idea of being a Mormon family to go visit these very holy sites. And so this now will be one more restored building that people can visit in this area. And yeah, they oh, since 2003, they've spent about $15 million on historic Kirtland, which also includes a sawmill and other restored buildings in the settlement. And I don't know if anybody else watched Under the Banner of Heaven that was on Hulu this spring, but it kind of renewed my interest in, in the whole formation of the Mormon church. It was fascinating. Interesting you mentioned that. Cause, so when we were discussing this in the newsroom the other day, and that show came up, and I wondered if people who were curious about uh, the Mormon church would be interested in visiting this these you know this site in Kirtland because of their curiosity about uh, the religion. And, and one of the reporters mentioned that sites— 
are typically not open to non-members of, of, the, of the church. Oh, and really? I wondered if that's true. I was looking around online, and it appears that that rule usually, you know, it typically applies to the temples, which restrict access right. to those members right. who are fully engaged with their church. So I'm, I'm assuming, but I guess I don't know fully if any history buff would be w- welcome to visit the Joseph Smith House in Kirtland. And, um, and I think that you can't. I mean, I'm, I have not visited. Actually, I did go years ago. They have a really cool... Um, exhibit every Christmas of manger scenes, the, the, the creches. So they they show those off every year and it is really cool. So I've been in a building there and they definitely welcome the public. Uh, so I would, I think this is going to be open to the public, but you're right. You have to be a member in good standing to go to the temple. But yeah, the show actually recreates a lot of important moments in Mormon history, like very specifically. And so it'll be interesting if there are like fans that want to come visit Kirtland because of it. Very interesting. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Well, the Tall Ships Festival is back in Cleveland for the first time since 2019. Lisa, give us some of the highlights of of what's in store. Well, there are seven uh, tall ships that sailed into the Cleveland Harbor yesterday, and they looked wonderful. I didn't get to go down there myself, but I did see video of these majestic ships sailing into the harbor. Um, There's all kinds of festivities for this event going down right there at North Coast Harbor by First Energy Stadium from today through Sunday. So the Festival Village opens at 9 o'clock today. It features live music, tours, food and beverage. That's at 101 Erie Side Avenue. At 10 o'clock daily, they will have sailaways. They'll have Lake Erie excursions on the Appledore 4 and the Inland Seas ships. Uh, there are on-deck tours of these wonderful tall ships, 11 to 6 p.m. daily in the Festival Village. You can talk to the captains and crews. That's a forum that's taking place daily as well. So lots of stuff going on. They've, they've got food. They've got drink. They've got vendors selling maritime-themed stuff. Live music. Have you guys ever been? What, to the tall ships? Yeah, have you ever toured a tall ship? I've sailed on a tall ship. Yeah, you mentioned that the other day, Lisa. Do you think it's worth it? Like, is the sail away worth it for people to to do that experience? I I think so. I mean, you know, this was the 1877 Iron Bark Alyssa, which is docked in Galveston, Texas. And, oh, that's uh, right. you know, she um, I actually sailed on her twice. And uh, it's it's amazing to see these people because they're all volunteers and they learn to climb these masts, unfurl and furl these sails. Wow. And every so often they had to th- have us grab a rope and help them, you know, like, you know, uh, put up a sail. So, wow. yeah. Oh, yeah. It, there's nothing like yeah. being on an old ship. And the crews, like, live on the ship all summer, and there's, like, a lot of teenagers that do it. It's really cool. One of the ships is the U.S. Brig Niagara, which is permanently docked in Erie, and it is basically a replica of the War of 1812 ship, you know, Oliver Hazard Perry. Uh, We have met the enemy, and they are mine, you know, don't Don't give up the ship ship. of the famous flag. But it was really cool is they actually purposely sunk that ship in Lake Erie, near Erie, um, scuttled it when they didn't know what to do with it anymore. And then they resurrected it, I believe in the 1930s. And what was left of it, they rebuilt to create what is now the U.S. Brig Niagara. So wow. it has like, they've replaced almost everything, but it, it is the original ship that was purposely sunk and then resurrected. Wow, that's real cool. So Lisa, there's an oddity about Tall Ships Festival this this year. They're going to have, it's going to be featuring some some weird underwater guests, these sea lampreys. What is that all about? 
Yeah, the Great Lakes Fishery Commission will have a display tank there at the uh, festival grounds with six sea lampreys. They want to educate about their very uh, damaging effects on Great Lakes fishing. So uh, Ross Shaw with the Fishery Commission says that uh, without a multinational effort between the U.S. and Canada, a $7 billion industry of fishing would be decimated in the Great Lakes area. So these ugly little things are about 16 to 18 inches long. They have a mouth that's like a round mouth with a suction cup, and it's just lined with rows and rows of 150 teeth. So they latch onto a fish. They have a sharp tongue that's like a borer that just bores through a hole, a hole through the fish and sucks out their insides so yeah woo. and they spend three to five years as as larva at the bottom of the sea and this is when they kill them they use a, a pesticide to kill them in the larval stage and then for 12 to 18 months they're in their parasitic stage and that's when they start a attacking fish lake trout are their favorites but they'll eat almost any other fish they eat up to 40 pounds of fish a piece during their parasitic stage oh my god i the photo of it i gotta admit it looks like something you'd encounter in the upside down doesn't it like <laughs> looks like a baby demogorgon or something it's so disgusting anyway so so interesting that they'll be uh, educating people about it at the tall ships festival you're listening to today in ohio what did reporter Sean McDonald find this week when he took a look at data for gambling revenue in Ohio? Laura, this is a kind of an interesting trend that I, I can't really put my finger on. What is it? <laughs> right. So the record pace, because I feel like for months and months and months, we kept being like, it's another record month for casinos in Ohio. That could be over. So I think we're in the third month where we didn't break a record. We brought in $196 million in gambling revenue in June. That was $7.6 million shy of the revenue brought in in June 2021. These are for reports from the Ohio Casino Control and Lottery Commission, the money that kept by the gambling houses after paying out the winnings, but before state taxes and fees. And the four casinos in the state brought in $3.2 million less in gambling revenue in June than comparatively last year, but they're still ahead of where they were in 2019. So that was pre-pandemic. We're doing okay. The casinos are similar, and we're still higher midway through 2022 than halfway through 2021, but... And that was a record year. But remember, there were still a lot of COVID restrictions. There were curfews and people wouldn't necessarily want to be in an indoor space touching all the same things that everyone else was touching. So what do we think is to account for for this trend now, three months in a row of dipping numbers? Is, do you think COVID is keeping people from casinos now? I mean, no. judging from other no. news stories from the past year, it looked like gamblers were dying to come back to in-person casinos. And that last summer, casinos everywhere saw great earnings and I'm inclined to say no to that COVID theory, but I mean, yeah. uh, what is it? Why? I just think maybe we've finally evened out. You know, you can't you can't have huge increases forever. Maybe we've saturated the market. I guess so. And I mean, also, I, I don't really know. I don't know much about the gambling subculture and what brings people into casinos. But do you think that given the booming popularity of sports betting in this country, do you think that once sports betting becomes available in Ohio, the popularity of in-person gambling will, will further wane. What's your theory? What do you think is, what's your prediction? Well, maybe because there will be, you know, like actual physical places where you can go bet on sports at these sports yeah. books. But I think if you love like a card game, that's not yeah. going to change. Those are two different communities or two different clientele 
of uh yeah right i guess so there's probably people who enjoy those table games and slot machines and we're talking of different different kinds of gamblers who probably have nothing to do with one another but they might overlap i mean you might want to do it all but i don't think that makes you like one less than the other until you run out of money <laughs> yeah, that, that, there's that. you're listening to today in ohio what is at the heart of a disagreement between the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the Ohio EPA? Lisa, uh, this, is, uh, this is really interesting. <laughs> What's going on? The United States EPA objected to the Ohio EPA's draft discharge permit in Euclid for the wastewater treatment plant there. They're trying to renew their permit, but the U.S. EPA says the phosphorus levels in the permits don't meet water quality requirements of the Federal Clean Water Act. The levels for that are calling for 0.007 milligrams per liter of phosphorus per month to be discharged. The Ohio EPA says there's no way we can meet that. Currently, their levels are one milligram per liter. And they said that this, even if they did meet that, it would have no significant impact on water quality in Lake Erie. They had also proposed a 0.5 milligram per liter compromise, the US EPA did, but the Ohio EPA said that's not legally or scientifically feasible. They say the data's flaws. They use inland lakes as their, you know, their data instead of like a Great Lake. And they say that the US EPA is ignoring the Maumee Watershed Nutrient Total Daily Maximum Load efforts where they've been trying to reduce phosphorus coming off the Maumee River. You know, I found this story to be kind of mind-boggling in its implications for public wastewater treatment systems and, and for every one of us who would be responsible for paying the bill associated with the kinds of complicated changes to the treatment process that would be required to achieve what the U.S. EPA is asking for here. But then meanwhile, thousands of farmers across northern Ohio are the cause of the problem, right? With their uncontrolled use of fertilizers and and the state's response to that is what? To set up what is primarily a financial incentive program, urging them to to try to to control their fertilizer use and minimize their runoff. It's not not just fertilizer. What is actually a huge problem is the confined feeding operations, which Mm -hmm. is basically when you have like hundreds of animals in one barn and you have to figure out what to do with all their poop mm. my gosh and and so those don't even need a permit up to a certain number of hogs and cows and and everything else and so these are going in in places uh kind of near toledo there were two a couple of years ago that the council wanted people wanted the council to have to make them get the same kind of permits that a wastewater treatment plant has to get. They're like, if you're going to have all this poop here, you need to treat it. But the state is, of course, like, well, no. So there is a double standard when it comes to agriculture and Absolutely. People. You know, the, the state's website for their, you know, H2O plan that's supposed to be fixing this lays out these 10 agricultural strategies that are proven to reduce phosphorus runoff. And then it quotes Governor DeWine saying, For now, we will not mandate the use of these best practices because we believe our strategy will lead to significant changes within our current laws. Also, we're afraid you're going to vote against us if we make you comply. Right, right. And it seems we can be a little more aggressive with farmers here, right? Right. 
And, you know, the expense, uh, the uh, sewer district people say that this is going to be crazy expensive to, to meet this. And they already said that at Euclid, they've already spent $200 million to renovate and expand the plant and eliminate releases of untreated sewage. And they're planning to spend $70 million more. So adding those changes on top of that would be way, way more expensive. Well, we uh, that does it for a Friday, and that does it for the week. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Join us Monday. Chris Quinn will be back in the captain's seat, and we'll be back for another discussion of the news. Mm-hmm.